Okay? <laughs> Rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> As we continue making our way through this first century letter, which the Apostle Paul wrote from a jail cell in the city of Rome, to the church he helped plant in the church of Philippi, we come to an exhortation which most readers of the letter remember the most. Paul exhorts his sisters and brothers, as he calls them, to rejoice in the Lord. He says it twice. It's the only exhortation he repeats in the letter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, or further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. And chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. On a Saturday morning in February of 2008, 15 years ago now, I had the joy of taking our then two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Jennifer, to the park. It had snowed the night before, and so this was not an easy thing to do. I had to first outfit her in her snowsuit, her mittens, her boots, and her cap. And we began our time at the park by trying to make a snowman. The temperature was too low, so that did not work. The snow would not stick. No luck either with making snowballs. So we decided to engage in her favorite park activity. We decided to go over to the swing set and swing. I set her on her swing, no small feet, as she was stiff in her pink snowsuit and could barely move her arms and legs. But we made it onto the swing. Back and forth, I pushed her to her great delight. Higher, Campa. That's what she called me at the time. A great improvement over what she was calling me, Crappa. <laughs> Higher, Campa. Faster, Campa. Back and forth, swing, 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 swing. After a few moments, Jennifer released her right hand from the chain holding the swing and put it on her heart. Campa? Yes, Jennifer? I am so happy. I could see it in her eyes. I could hear it in her voice. That's wonderful to hear, I said, not sure how she was using this word happy. She then put her, took her right hand back and put it on the chain and asked me to keep pushing her back and forth, back and forth, swing, 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 swing. She was so free, and I was freezing. <laughs> then she looked to the hills, uh, to the hills west of the, uh, of the park. Then she looked to her right to the yet taller hills east of the park. Campa, yes, the mountains are laughing. They are, I replied with great curiosity. Yes, she said. Can you hear them? I could not, but I was not going to tell her. They're laughing, I asked, why? Without hesitation, she said, because the mountains are happy too. I said to myself, oh, for eyes to see and ears to hear. Back and forth, she continued to swing. Then she looked at me, eye to eye, and she asked, Campa, are you happy? Like I said, I did not know how she was using this word happy. I think she meant joy. As I'm sure you know, joy is something deeper than happiness. Happiness comes and goes with favorable happenings. 
Joy goes much deeper and is not dependent on happenings. I think Jennifer was experiencing joy, and she wanted to know if her grandfather was experiencing joy. She was tasting joy and wanted to know if her grandfather was tasting joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Kampa, are you happy? Like, what was I supposed to say? I was happy, she was happy, and that she had the ability to articulate what she was experiencing. And I was deeply moved that she saw and heard the mountains laughing. But what was I supposed to say? Jennifer, I'd like to be happy, but some dishonest men ripped off your dad at work, and he's having to work long hours to make the financial ends meet. I could not tell her that, could I? Jennifer, I would like to be happy, but there's a war going on in Iraq and another in Afghanistan, and a lot of people are getting killed, and the wars are draining the Western economy. I I could not tell her that, could I? Jennifer, I'd like to be happy, but I gave my first lecture on my course on preaching and worship last Wednesday, and it did not go as well as it had on other semesters. I could not tell her that either, could I? I was, of course, processing all of that in a nanosecond. Well, this little girl who can read the cosmos is asking me, are you happy? She was asking more than she knew. For she was in that moment being a good Puritan. A good Puritan? You may have heard the popular definition of a Puritan. A Puritan is someone who is afraid that somewhere, someone is having fun. (laughs) Not. Like, totally not. Theologian J.I. Packer, who before he recently passed through to the other world, taught at Regent College, and he turned the popular definition on its head. A Puritan, says Packer, is someone who is afraid that somewhere, someone is not enjoying the joy of the Lord. Kampa, are you on this cold, snowy day experiencing the joy in the Lord that I and the mountains are experiencing? She, of course, did not say it that way, but she was asking it, or as I should say, the Lord was asking it of me. Since that Saturday in the park 15 years ago now, I'm regularly convicted, better, haunted, whenever I read Paul's exhortation to the Philippians. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Now, we've been calling this series in Philippians, Citizens. That's because of Paul's major exhortation in his letter. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves. We pointed out that this word means to live as citizens of. Being in a Roman colony, the disciples of Jesus in Philippi knew how to live as citizens of the empire shaped by the gospel of Caesar Nero. But since coming into relationship with Jesus, the true king of the world, they are living in Philippi now as citizens of the empire shaped by the gospel of Jesus. And in this section of the letter before us today, Paul is saying that one of the indications 
that we actually are living as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus is that we rejoice in the Lord in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Now, this exhortation would have carried clout with the Philippians for two concrete reasons. First, Paul is speaking this exhortation from a crummy prison cell in a crummy part of Rome. He's not speaking from happy circumstances. And second, they had seen him do it in their own city when their church was planted. The story of the emergence of the church in Philippi is told by a disciple of Paul, a medical doctor named Luke. And in the 16th chapter of Luke's book we call Acts, we learn that this church was born out of a number of miracles. It was born out of a number of gracious works of the Holy Spirit. A businesswoman named Lydia was listening to Paul preach the gospel alongside the river that gently flows through Philippi. Sharon and I had the privilege last September of putting our feet in that little river. And as she's listening, Luke says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. This is a miracle that the Spirit has done for many of us in this room. It's a miracle he's doing for some of you right now in this room. A young slave girl is freed from demonic possession. She'd been following Paul, the spirit of divination within her, hassling Paul. Paul turned and says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it did, and she was free. And he can do the same thing in our city. Those who were making financial profit off of her captivity were furious. So they persuaded the city powers to throw Paul and his traveling companion Silas into jail. About midnight, there was a great earthquake. Luke says it shook the foundation of the city prison, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. The soldier guarding Paul was horrified. He was going to be in big trouble because he was supposed to make sure that the prisoners were kept in the cell. He even contemplated killing himself. But Paul told him that he and Silas were going nowhere. The soldiers so moved, they asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they're told, believe, he's told, believe in the Lord Jesus. And Luke tells us the soldier believed. And one more miracle, probably the best miracle. Luke tells us that at midnight in that dirty and dark cell, Paul and Silas were singing hymns of praise to God. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. That is how alive in the gospel they were. In the midst of those awful circumstances, they chose to sing, to sing praises, to rejoice in the Lord. So when Paul, 10 years later, exhorts the church in Philippi to do the same, His exhortation comes with a lot of credibility. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write these things again is no trouble for me because he has rejoiced in the Lord in all kinds of difficult circumstances. And it is a safeguard to you. What does that mean? A safeguard. Well, Paul knows what it means to be human. Paul knows that we humans are so wired for joy that we're vulnerable to try to find it in places that cannot finally deliver. 
Paul wants joy. You want joy. I want joy. Every human person on this planet wants joy. That's why the French mathematician theologian Blaise Pascal said, all men and women seek happiness or joy without exception. They will never make the smallest move but with this as its goal. We all want joy. We cannot live without joy. The fact is, our Creator wants us to have joy. Jesus, our Savior, wants us to have joy. On the night before going to the cross, he says to a group of his first disciples, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. John 15, verse 11, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And then he prays, Father, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. John chapter 17, verse 13, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. So Paul says, it is a safeguard to you. He's saying again, rejoice in the Lord, a safeguard because it is so easy for us joy seekers to go off the rails and seek joy where it ultimately cannot be found. Note well, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. The fullness of joy is found in the Lord, in a person, meaning that joy is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of belonging to him who is joy. Paul will say the same, later, same thing later in his letter about peace. Peace, too, is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of belonging to him who is peace. In the 17th century, the Church of Scotland wanting to make sure that it was actually making disciples of Jesus, gathered together a number of questions and answers into a document known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The idea was to encourage disciples to regularly work their way through these questions and answers of the catechism as individuals, as families, as small groups. Question one, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of humanity? Answer one, the chief end of man or of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were created to experience joy in him. Indeed, it is when we find our joy in him that we glorify him. Theologian John Piper rephrases the catechism. The chief end of humanity is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Is that not good? Glorify God by enjoying him forever. This is why Chris Price will end his public prayers with, we pray this for the glory of your name and for our joy. Kampa, are you happy? She did not realize what she was asking. Kempa, are you finding joy in the Lord? Are you glorifying God by enjoying him? So Paul goes on in the verses after this exhortation to help the Philippians and us actually do it, to actually rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 2, beware. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision. Now, it initially feels that Paul has shifted away from the quest for joy, but he has not. 
For as he expresses his desire that the Philippians and he and we find joy in the Lord, he warns us of joy robbers. Beware. To what is he referring? Well, throughout his, throughout his ministry, a group of people followed Paul, hassling him and those whom he led to Christ. They would stir up trouble for him in nearly every city where he preached the gospel. They were likely Jewish Christians. People who had come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. That's what the word Christ means, Messiah. They affirm that Jesus is Lord of, of the universe. They affirm that Jesus is Savior of the world. But, and the but was disastrous. But they believed that to really be saved to really be in with God, to really have life and security and peace and joy, one needed to add one little thing to Jesus and his death on the cross. Just one little thing. Just one little thing to please God. That one little thing was circumcision. We hear the troublemaker's message at the Jerusalem council that was called to deal with all this. Luke tells us about it in Acts 15. Chapter 15, verse 1, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. It is fine to believe in Jesus, they would say. Jesus' death on the cross does have implication for our salvation, they would say. But if you really want to make sure you're right with God, you need to add one little thing. For Paul, that one little thing distorts the gospel. Indeed, that one little thing destroys the gospel, and it robs us of the joy of the Lord. The gospel declares that we are right with God and can therefore find joy in God solely on the basis of Christ and his cross plus nothing. Am I right? Christ plus nothing. Am I right? <laughs> The only thing we do is receive the gift of salvation in Christ. The only act on our part is to believe, to throw ourselves on God's amazing grace. To add any plus to the death and resurrection of Jesus is to gut the gospel and thereby drain the joy of the Lord from our souls. So Paul immediately follows, rejoice in the Lord with beware, be on guard. Any plus to Christ alone robs us of joy. This accounts for Paul's unusually strong language. He calls the troublemakers dogs, not exactly politically correct. In the first century, a dog was a degrading term. Dogs were outcasts. They were hunting amidst the garbage dumps, snapping and snarling at all those who came by. Some strict, self-righteous Jews would call Gentiles dogs. Paul, the Jew, turns the tables. Those Jewish Christians perverting the gospel are the dogs. They were, so to speak, chewing up the gospel and ripping joy out of believers' hearts. Paul calls the troublemakers evildoers. What a horrible indictment. Those Jewish Christians perverting the gospel were promoting good works. Not a bad thing to do but not as a plus to Christ. Adding any plus to Christ, however good, means doing evil. Yikes. Paul calls them the false circumcision. Now, you might know Paul is writing in Greek, and in the Greek, he's making a pun. The regular word for circumcision is peritome, literally cut around. 
The word Paul uses to describe the troublemakers is katotomi, which literally means cut along or cut through or even cut into pieces. You get the point. It's almost vulgar. Any plus, any plus to the finished work of Christ mutilates the gospel. Beware of those who add anything to Jesus, Messiah, and his finished work on the cross. The gospel is such good news because it says we are saved by Jesus, the Messiah, alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. It is Christ plus nothing. Will you say those words with me? Christ plus nothing. Again, please. Christ plus nothing. Again, please, only louder. Christ plus nothing. Christ plus anything, anything, however good, however noble, robs us of joy. Because we're never sure that that's the only plus. And we're never sure that we've done the plus well enough. So, Paul goes on to say, I put no confidence in the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 3. I put no confidence in the flesh, which is what the troublemakers were doing. Now, by flesh, Paul is not referring to the flesh of our bodies, as in the expression flesh and bones. He's using this term flesh in a theological sense, referring to life lived independently of God. For Paul, flesh is life lived in my own power and my own wisdom. What Paul is saying, therefore, is I put no confidence in my ability to make myself right with God. I freely admit that human resources, mine and all human combined, cannot make me pleasing to the living God. Before Jesus got a hold of Paul, Paul did have confidence in the flesh. He did have confidence that he could make himself right with a holy God. So chapter 3, verse 4, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day, just as Torah required, of the nation of Israel, pure Jewish, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the 12 sons of Jacob and Israel, only Benjamin was born on the promised land. Israel's first king, Saul, was from the tribe of Benjamin. The holy city, Jerusalem, with its holy place, the temple, is in the land of Benjamin. When all the other tribes of Israel were falling into idolatry, Benjamin remained faithful to the longest. To be a Benjamite was to be as pure a Jew as one could be. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As other Jews were losing the native language and were speaking only Greek, Paul's family kept up the Hebrew, kept it alive. As to the law, a Pharisee committed to keeping the whole law when others were capitulating to the culture around them. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So committed is he to doing the will of God that he did whatever he could do to get rid of this heretical Jesus and his followers. It's one of history's biggest examples of how religious zeal can miss the mark. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Paul was convinced that he had kept everything God requires us to keep. And he was proud that he had done everything God asked of us. And then he met the risen Jesus. Or better, the risen Jesus met him. And in the face of Jesus, Paul came to see that none of his religious heritage or achievement justified him before God and he had no choice to say I put no confidence in the flesh indeed I boast in Christ Jesus 
Chapter 3, verse 3, we are the true circumcision who boast in Christ Jesus, or better, who glory in Christ Jesus. That is where joy is found. I put no confidence in who I am and what I have done. I put my confidence in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. I boast in Christ Jesus. Now, we need to hear that phrase with Jewish ears, especially in light of what the prophet Jeremiah says. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Listen. Thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Me, Yahweh. The only boasting worth boasting about is knowing Yahweh. Paul says, I boast in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the high view he has of Christ Jesus? Christ is on the same level as Yahweh. For Christ Jesus is Yahweh come to save. Boast in Yahweh come to save. That is where the joy is found. So we're not surprised that Paul then says, all he has boasted in before Jesus got a hold of him adds up to zero. I have counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 7. I've counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. That radical shift is what finally brought Paul into joy. The focus was now off himself and onto Christ. It's the radical shift that finally brings us into joy. The focus is off ourselves and onto Christ. I take my eyes off of me and my efforts to be holy and put them on Jesus and Jesus' efforts to make me holy. At the beginning of the journey of discipleship and at every step along the way, I boast in Christ Jesus. Paul goes further, chapter 3, verse 8. I regard all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus. Not just knowing about him, as good as that is, but actually knowing him person to person. I regard all as lost in view of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All things lost, literally all things garbage. I count all things garbage in order that I may gain Christ. More literally, the word is actually dung. All things dung. I count all things dung in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's not saying that all things are dung. It's just that in comparison to actually knowing the Messiah, everything else he valued seemed to be so much rubbish. I counted all loss. To be found in him. Chapter 3, verse 9. That I may be found in him. In. In him. Paul says this 164 times in his letters. One of my favorite theologians, James Stewart, summarizes Paul's whole theology in his book, A Man in Christ. And he writes, The final stress must ever fall on one thing and one thing only. Union with Christ Life in fellowship with Christ. Found in him. The older I go, grow, the greater that is my desire. To be found in Christ. Wherever else I am, I want with Paul to be found in Christ. Where else would we want to be found? At home, 
at work, at school, in a hospital, in the car, in the bus, at a restaurant, at a coffee shop, in the shopping center, or at a movie theater, at a hockey rink, or soccer pitch, day or night, I want to be found in Christ. He is our home. He is not only our life, he is where we live. This, by the way, is where the tradition of signing your letter in Christ came from. You sign that letter as a way to remind yourself where your true home is. I'm writing the letter from Vancouver, but where I live is in Christ. Found in him. Found. It's in the passive voice, not active, but passive, meaning, get this, we do not find Christ, he finds us. As one commentator keenly observes, Paul subtly shifts from being the subject of his own story to being part of a story in which Christ is now the subject. Isn't that good? I am not the subject of my own story. Christ Jesus is. I did not create me. He did. I did not save me. He did. I did not find myself. Christ finds me. And then in Christ, I finally find myself. And all Paul then lives for is knowing Christ. Chapter 3, verse 10, that I might know him. Again, more than know about him, to actually know him person to person. Given who he is, what can hold a candle to actually knowing him? Once you meet him, you want to know him more. And once you know him more, you want to know him even more. I want to know Christ as Savior. And to have him save me in a way every human being needs to be saved. I want to know Christ as Lord. I want to surrender to his will in every way that I need to surrender. I want to know Christ as Redeemer and have him free me from any captivity to which I have allowed myself to be bound. I want to know Christ as the eternal Son of the Father, to be adopted into his status with the Father and to pray with him, Abba, Father. I want to be caught up in his trusting and delighting in the Father. I want to know Christ as the light of the world, to have him drive out any darkness I have welcomed into my mind, to bring me into his healing and cleansing light. I want to experience being loved by light. I want to know Christ as the bread of life and to be satisfied in the only way he can satisfy a human being. I want to know Christ as the one by whom all things were made. I want to know why he bothered making me. I want to know Christ for whom all things were made. I want to know that I am his come what may. I want to know Christ as the one in whom all things hold together. I want to know that when I fall apart, I fall into his embrace. I want to know Christ in his compassion, to know that he does not reject me when I fall at his feet, that he will never let me go. I want my heart to beat with his heart for the world. I want to know Christ in his holiness, to have him melt my heart and make me wholly his. I want to know Christ in his wisdom. I want to see the world as he sees it. I want to see humanity as he sees it. I want to see what's going on in the world right now as he sees it. I want to know Christ as the good shepherd. I want to have him lead me into places of rest and restoration. I want him to keep me on the path. I no longer want to be afraid of the valley of the shadow of death because I know that he will be there with me. And I want with Paul to know the power of his resurrection, to live in the power that raises the dead. Oh, such power. And with Paul, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings 
the fellowship of his sufferings? Has not Paul put things in the wrong order? Should it not be? Know the fellowships of his suffering and then the power of his resurrection? It seems that Paul has it backwards. He starts with Easter morning, then goes back to Good Friday. But he has not put it in the wrong order. For it turns out that the primary place where we experience Christ's resurrection power is by participating in his suffering. Participating in his being rejected by the world. Participating in his experiencing the world's hostility toward him. Participating in being hated by the devil. Belong to Christ and we enter into his sufferings. And in those sufferings, then experiencing the power of the resurrection. For where else does resurrection take place but in places of suffering? Do not be afraid to be drawn by Jesus into his suffering. That's the place where the resurrection life is found. And it is in the fellowship of his sufferings that this deeply rooted desire to live independently gets crucified and buried. In his love for us, Christ regularly leads us through experiences that crucify the flesh. And the more the flesh dies, the more we begin to live in the power of his risen life. There's a song we used to sing, Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross bids me come and die that I might truly live and truly know the joy of the Lord. Swing, swing, back and forth. Swing, swing, campa. Our granddaughter has now grown up to be a lovely, very bright young lady. She'll graduate from high school in a few months. She now addresses me as Grandpa Jay. And she now would ask her question with a whole lot more insight, especially after observing how I have tried to live out a relationship with Jesus. Grandpa Jay, yes, are you happy? She now knows what she's really asking. Are you finding your joy in the Lord? And I would reply, yes, Jennifer, I am. When I take my stand on the finished work of Christ plus nothing, when I am boasting in Christ, when I'm not putting my confidence in the flesh, when I'm counting all that I have gained as loss compared to the greater gain of Christ, when I'm found in Christ, and when I'm seeking to know him as fully as any human being possibly can. But Jennifer, this joy is bittersweet as you have come to experience. For we will not know the fullness of this joy until he comes. C.S. Lewis, who articulated the longing for joy as few have, spoke of an inconsolable longing at the heart of joy. For we cannot know Christ to the degree that we long to know him until he comes again and we see him face to face. And then not only mountains will laugh, but the whole universe caught up in joy inexpressible. I invite you to simply be still for a few moments.
And in the stillness, let me ask you two questions and invite you to answer to the Lord. Question one, what is the best thing you heard today? And question two, what today is the deepest longing of your heart?